Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of CEPAD Pod, the Sectarianism, Proxies, and Desectarianization podcast based at Lancaster University. Today, I'm joined by Walid Husban. Walid is Richard L. Chambers Professor of Middle Eastern Studies in the Department of Political Science at the University of Alabama. He's previously taught international relations at the American University of Beirut and at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. He's the author of the absolutely fantastic Beaches, Ruins, Resort, The Politics of Tourism in the Arab World. He's the co-editor of New Conflict Dynamics Between Regional Autonomy and Intervention in the Middle East and North Africa. And he's also a member of the Critical Security Studies in the Arab World Working Project, which is absolutely fantastic and I look forward to, to talking more about. Walid, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, it's great to talk to you. Really looking forward to this conversation. Uh, our paths have, I think, overlapped in a number of ways across the years, and I'm pleased that our diaries have been able to overlap and, and find a time today. I normally start the conversation, Waleed, with a question of, of what piqued your interest in in academia and in, in political science, international relations more broadly. So, so can, you, can you speak to that then, please? Yeah, I, I mean, I think the, the, my, experience, my experience goes back to, I think, just growing up in a household where my father was a student at the American University of Beirut in the 1950s. Right. The, time of heightened, you know, regional political activism, Arab nationalism. And so I grew up with this understanding of the lens of Middle East politics through his experience of when he was younger. Um, I was mostly an engineering and science student, but I always had this interest in politics. We moved from California to Europe um, when I was like 10. So I lived in Paris and Athens and sort of was, you know, grew up kind of with a more, uh, um, let's say, international experience, uh, thinking about world politics, even though I was mostly like a science and engineering student. And I think kind of in college, you know, I sort of had these dual interests. And uh, the, the, you know, the story is I sort of placed out of my first year of computer science, took second year of computer science, got a D in that, and sort of the choice between engineering and political science was, was kind of uh, um, influenced by that sort of, <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, experience, so I, I more quickly became interested in, in, you know, I took courses with John Waterbury and others um, at Princeton, sort of got into that kind of, let's say, you know, track of, of doing academic work um, and interested in, in political science, uh, you know, of, of the Middle East. But then the other thing is that when I went to graduate school, so I, I, um, I was originally not planning on studying the Middle East. Right. Um, okay. I was interested in political economy, the politics mm-hmm. of industrialization. I went to MIT where Charles Sable was was teaching there at the time. Um, but I think I, I got to this point where I realized there's a lot of work that needs to be done on the Middle East. Um, you know, developing new tools from political economy uh, and, and things like that. So that's kind of how I ended up ending up working on on the Middle East because it was like a topic that I needed to, wanted to apply new tools to. Sure. Um, and eventually I got interested in tourism and that's a whole nother story. Well, we'll get to that story in a minute if, if, if that's okay. But you mentioned something just uh, a few minutes ago about viewing, viewing politics and viewing the region through your, your father's eyes, his, his lens from, from AUB. Could you elaborate on that? What, what do you mean exactly? Yeah, well, I think my, 
Um, so he was a he was a he's, my family's Palestinian from from Bethlehem. He grew up partially in Amman, Jordan, and from there he went to to AUB. He got a scholarship um, to go to AUB. He was an engineering student, but was was heavily involved in Arab nationalist politics at the time. So growing up, I kind of saw you know this was in the 80s. So we had the you know civil war in Lebanon, the Israeli invasion of Lebanon. We had a lot of politics around the PLO. And um, um, and so I grew up like learning about these events through his lens of politics in the fifties, right, so okay. Arab nationalism and George Habash, and um, and you know the, from the, the PFLP to the you know the Arab nationalist movement to and so this was you know and, and he talked about this moment in the fifties of you know thinking about Arab politics, thinking about Arab nationalism, unity, uh, um, Kamal Abdel Nasser. Um, so the, these were things that were very familiar to me when I was much younger, and the, the um, um, you know, and so uh, and, and that that history of the let's say the Arab modernist project, mm-hmm. I think Arab nationalism was also you know he was an engineer, and I think there was that generation that viewed about thought, thought about rebuilding the Arab world, um, and and how many of these 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 aspirations were were, were challenged and dashed by regional politics. Um, uh, you know the, the the rise of you know authoritarianism that didn't fulfill its mission of national modernization and development. So I kind of I, I grew up with that sort of that legacy of those aspirations about the Arab world from oh. his kind of you know from that lens. And I think I wanted to kind of study and understand more of that moment in that era. Um, I did my undergraduate thesis on, on Nasser and his, you know, development, the, the, the projects for, for national development and the limits of that. Um, and then also the, the idea of regional politics, how did Palestine fit in um, to, to regional politics? So I think I, um, you know, uh, I, I had, in, and so you think about growing up in um, the context of especially growing up as an Arab American, um, you know, your news your news says one thing, and then you kind of know that there's more to the story. Sure. So I was always interested in this idea of there's multiple narratives, multiple points of view. They don't all fit together. You know, at the same time, my father was a you know a Republican at the time, but was also you know um, uh, you know began to like read Noam Chomsky. Right. And you know, the the two things you know um, kind of you know, kind of went together, it sort of made sense of what what did this mean about, so the idea of having political views that didn't fit into neat categories was something I kind of feel like I grew up with. Okay, that's that's interesting to hear. How do you reconcile that then? Or how did you reconcile this sort of intellectual incongruence, perhaps? Um, I think it was just a matter of, of um, feeling like I was interested in trying to, um, well, one kind of understand what's the what's what was the story. So some of it is a matter of like learning the history for yourself, not just yeah, through these sure. these stories. Um, but I also felt the personal connection to it. Um, everything from you know um, Malcolm Kerr was somebody actually my father knew in the fifties when he was uh, I think when he was I don't know if he was doing his master's degree at the time at AUB in Ann Kerr. Um, so these these figures from become Middle East studies and international relations of the Middle East were kind of people he knew and met. So you know the more I would learn about 
um, um, uh, you know, Albert Harani and, and Khalid Khaldi and, you know, some of these figures, they're people he knew and met and they came to speak at AUB. So during my education, I kind of had this thing to relate to him with. Fantastic. Um, and, um, yeah, and I, in some ways, I don't, I don't know if I feel it's, it's, um, you know, um, I think it, rather than seeing it as some sort of contradictions or, or conundrums, it's the way I, I, I think in a more kind of, let's say, pluralistic way. Mm-hmm. Like I've always thought that that there was always maybe I don't know if you call them truths, but but understandings, you know, world uh, conceptions, intersubjective understandings that weren't always congruous. How did they how did they sit together? Um, and I think that was something I always assumed. Or I always just accepted this idea that all pieces, you know, was fit together. There wasn't one, uh, uh, one logic to it. There wasn't one right answer. Um, mm. So my, my, you know, I believe in this very sort of like highly contingent, indetermined kind of way of understanding the world. Um, very. So I, I was, you know, I never, I never had a kind of positivism. Never really made a lot of sense to me because I never thought there would be these kind of empirical, testable questions that could have one clear answer and the idea was moving towards, um, you know, a kind of science of that, even though I was trained in, you know, uh, chemistry and engineering and I came from a science background when it came to understanding politics, I kind of, uh, never, I felt it was a different kind of science you needed. It was more, you know, the quantum science. It was a science that was, there was a lot of, uh, uh, probability to it. There was a lot of, you know, multiple possible paths and that kind of way. It's interesting hearing you say that, and you just reminded us of, of your background, but I was thinking as you were talking about these these pieces not necessarily fitting neatly together, it's not the sort of thing that, that an engineer or someone trained in engineering would easily accept, I imagine. So perhaps you found your, your spiritual home in, in politics quite easily, and, uh, and that helped you to reconcile some of these things. Well, maybe. I mean, because I also feel... Um, I mean, I had an anthropologist as one of my teachers. Right. Okay. As an undergraduate, her father was a, a physicist, um, and she would say that you know most of social sciences is using math, uh, you know, scientific models that are like 100 years old. Um, you know, and that it's like you know, like he's trying to find a Newtonian model for understanding, uh, um, you know, social sciences. So, uh, and then I went to MIT, actually, where, where engineering is not just about, like, learning the tools to answer these set problems. It is about rethinking the, the terms of creation, uh, re-engineering, uh, coming up with new, um, new forms of materials, new ways things can be organized. So I think, like, I was inspired by engineering can actually really, you know, rethink the terms of things, find new ways that... Um, to, to bend things in ways that, you know, your textbook said couldn't be bent. You know, that's the kind of way I thought. And it's kind of like craftsmanship. Uh, you know, I studied with, with Charles Sable, who looked at, you know, flexible specialization in artisan production and this idea of, of, um, of rethinking the way things can be built. Uh, and thinking about societies is very, yeah. uh, um, there's a certain amount of plasticity. Roberto Unger was one of his friends and, you know, inspirations who has a kind of social theory of kind of society being possible to be reshaped 
Um, uh, so this, so so in some ways, that I didn't see that kind of sharp distinction. But what you did see in political science, in you know, especially in the United States, was moving more towards that kind of scientific model that was actually more rigid than the way engineers were thinking during that period of, of um, you know, kind of the the, the, the the you know the computer revolution, the idea of small scale innovative you know, um, uh, new technologies, new way of, you know, uh, um, you know, the personal computer, like reorganizing the way the information system works. Um, so a lot of that thinking and the stuff I studied in political economy was, was those kind of ways to rethink it could be capitalism or industrialization. So I didn't, you know, in many ways I found political science um, much more rigid and much more conventional in its approach to the world while, um, engineering and science often could be more imaginative. Right. That's absolutely fascinating and really interesting to see some of my own views challenged, actually, in terms of, of, of perceptions of engineering. So perhaps I need to go and, and study at MIT too, although maybe I'll, uh, I'll give that a miss for now. Um, well, let's talk a little bit about the PhD and then we'll get on to your, your interest in tourism, if that's okay. Sure. So the PhD was was where and and what were you doing it on? Um, it was at MIT in political science. Okay. And I I, I I went there in part because you know I'd almost I've always I've known about MIT since I was much younger and as an engineer it was a place I wanted to go. Um, and then I found myself in a new situation where. Um, that it was, it would be a good place to study political economy at the time. There was Charles Sable, uh, Michael Piori, Suzanne Berger. There was a lot of people who were more, you could say, in a kind of more, um, uh, um, you know, some of it was more historical institutionalist, economic sociology. Um, it was a time before uh, uh, rational choice and quantitative methods really took over um, a lot of political science. So the, you know, it was a good place. For, for going to study um, economic history as part of political science, economic theory, you know, um, uh, let's say um, uh, heterodox and unorthodox economic theory, um, and, and this idea of thinking about industrialization as a process. Um, so I went there to, to basically um, study political economy, which for me was a story that was dominated by, by Europe and North America um, in terms of industrialization. And so that's where I ended up, you know, um, uh, beginning my interest and focus. And MIT didn't have a strong, let's say, Middle East political science, you know, training. Um, Nazi Shukri, who taught there, much of her courses were actually, you know, uh, um, uh, involved with things like engineering, construction. How did how did these, you know, um, how did um, infrastructure development relate to politics? How did science? In uh, um, technology, relate to Middle East politics. So that was kind of my my experience there. Phil Curry was the dean, who who was um, uh, you know who's a Middle East historian. Yeah. Um, uh, was the dean of the, so he wasn't teaching his own courses. There would often be a visiting professor. So I took some Middle East history courses, very small, tiny. You know, you have four people in the class, mm, and wow. it could be like two undergraduates. Um, and then, you know, two PhD students. Um, so, and then I took some courses at Harvard. So I had this opportunity to do Middle East studies, but I wasn't 
doing it. It wasn't part of my normal program. You know, I had to go seek out yeah, those kind of sure. courses. Um, so I kind of crafted my own kind of, you know, experience mixing very distinct things like public economy and administrative law in North America, which is the kind of stuff that Charles Sable would do, um, uh, um, European, you know, um, political economy and industrialization, like Suzanne Berger taught, and then, um, uh, you know, um, uh, Susan Miller would do like North African history and the history of pirates and, you know, things like that. Um, and then I took some courses like at Harvard government, which were probably the least interesting courses that mm. I took because they were the most conventional and it was right. the 1990s where, where, you know, a seminar would start with this idea like, well, you know, the economists, to, you know, we know from economists that, that the free market, you know, uh, neoliberal economy makes the most rational sense. So the job of political scientists is to figure out how to get to there. And to me, you know, having been, you know, read Carl Polanyi and things like that as an undergraduate, made, that made no sense to me. The idea would be, well, you should, you know, now that you have in Eastern Europe more democratic opportunities, you should have a political system that should shape what your economic system should be. Sure. So I found much of the, the political science training, you know, really made no sense to me. Like, I didn't know, like, why are we, why are they doing this? Um, you have this opportunity to rethink what economies should be. Um, why, why do you go with this model of kind of this, you know, just, a um, you know, a free market neoliberal economy? Sure. That, that's interesting to hear the difference between, between the two institutions. And I can certainly understand the, the appeal of studying piracy more than, uh, uh, than, than the assumptions about neoliberal governance. But where does, where does tourism fit into this then? Is this, was this something that you started looking at during your, your doctoral research, or was this something that came afterwards, born out of some of the questions that you were looking at at this time? Um, you know, in the end, it was the sort of my fallback project. My first project was looking at small-scale artisan production in North Africa. Right, looking okay. Looking at from the interwar period to the post-independence period. Um, looking at sort of, and in particular in Tunisia, in, in, in areas like Sfax, and, and how there were these um, efforts to have small-scale artisan production. Some of it, um, you know, drew from my, my, my work with Charles Sable that gave me a kind of a new lens. Um, I looked at the labor movement in, in artisan cooperatives that were organized under the, the French protectorate. Um, and um, I did end up writing a paper about this, comparing different trade union, you know, um, attitudes towards decolonization. And some of them were this, this model that eventually won out under the uh, um, neo-destour, the Bolgivist, you know, that capture the state and use the state as a, you know, uh, uh, um, to centralize authority and to try to, you know, rebuild an economy and society through the state. Why... The, the earlier trade unions that were that were built off of the, the you know the French sort of left wing trade unions that when the Tunisians developed the more indigenous movement um, were were more allied with this idea of developing local cooperatives um, and uh, in a more decentralized you know model. So I was trying to trace to what degree there was this kind of story of a more decentralized vision for promoting modernization and industrialization, a path that might not have so directly 
you know, developed a much more authoritarian, centralized state, which right. we saw in Tunisia, we saw in Egypt, we saw in all these other places. So I was kind of looking for that alternative path of sort of, let's say, a different kind of Arab modernity. Um, and I couldn't get together a, a dissertation committee for that. You know, some people, um, when I, you know, had to go beyond MIT to find other committee members. Um, and, um, and I couldn't really find a, a third person who saw this as an interesting project that was very, that was political science and, and so forth. Um, so, you know, after that kind of failed to come together, I always had this interest in travel and tourism. Um, uh, this was the 1990s, so there was the Arab peace process, I mean, the Israeli-Palestinian peace process. Yeah. Um, and there was these hopes for, you know, regional tourism. So, so people started thinking about tourism as a new vehicle for economic development that might also be inspired by the peace process. The 1990s also saw an explosion of global uh, travel and tourism, um, you know, uh, the age of globalization. So it was kind of a, a, a economic sector that seemed to be important, but was very understudied, especially in political science. I also had this interest in geography and cultural studies. Um, and, and tourism was a field that was very interdisciplinary. It brought these things together. You had to understand... Um, you know, cultural trends uh, and marketing, as well as aviation, as well as economics, as well as, you know, yield management. Um, it, so it was, it was, um, it was something that, that fit with my sort of interdisciplinary training. My, 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 I studied economic anthropology as an undergraduate. Um, so, you know, with these different ways of thinking about political economy, um, uh, that I was, you know, trained at MIT. So it kind of, it was something that seemed, it, it fit my interest. It was also a project about the Arab world that hadn't been done, but also at the time, you know, you could talk to people and they say, oh, tourism, yeah, that's really important. You know, like, uh, you know, uh, if the Jordan and many other countries were talking about tourism as being a vehicle for, you know, economic development. Um, and uh, there was even talk about the oil states saying, you know, this will be our model for the future. Um, you know, after oil, we need to, you know, develop a new sector. So it really brought together a lot of my disciplinary interest or my interdisciplinary interest. It seemed a project that, um, you know, it was very, was not just very historical because my previous project was more historically oriented. It was one that um, there was also, a, you know, um, it is a way to tie in international political economy yeah. and connect to globalization at the time, was uh, you know, was a it was a kind of a, a question that was of interest beyond, let's say, the Middle East. Sure. So it kind of fit together, and it was also something that was very interesting to me that I knew I wanted to study, and I had studied on the side, um, just as an interest. So, can you tell us a bit about the the findings then? Some of the some of the things that you you got out of that that formative bit of work in the in the early nineties. But I'm also interested in, in how you've seen that evolve over the, the, the decades that followed. Yeah, the, um, I mean, the thing about the project is because so little was written about it before, you could, um, and this is what I was told at one of my you know, dissertation committee meetings, prospectus meetings, where it's like you could have like eight projects that related to tourism. You could look at different aspects of it. Um, and uh, so in the end, I had a, you know, Pared down, and I, I came up with a fairly um, not so straightforward, but a kind of contrast between Tunisia and Jordan. These were the two two cases I ended up focusing on and having done field work in. Um, and I highlighted this contrast 
um, between, you know, the, the kind of um, uh, Tunisia as a, as a case that was developing a kind of um, uh, mass tourism, beach-oriented mass tourism, and had a very, like, centralized state authority. The, the, the state um, would uh, gain control over bits of land, especially coastal land, and, and use that to sort of, like, create an infrastructure to produce a, 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 you know, a mass-produced commodity. Um, create infrastructure for investors to come by land and build hotels and and uh, and and market this image of you know of a, of a, a beach destination. So it was kind of a story of mass production. It fit within you know um, the the study of mass production uh, in industry that I had studied, and I could see this taking place in tourism. How do you create this product? How do you mass produce it. Um, there were there was expanding market across the Mediterranean, and Tunisia just created a cheaper version. How did Tunisia create a cheaper product that could compete across Mediterranean tourism? Um, so so that you know so that was what I, what I got from sort of the Tunisian case. But the other thing that was part of my experience was trying to do research in the 1990s in Tunisia was very difficult, and the state was much more suspicious. You felt like you were being followed. Right. You, you were you know the. You were asked to, you know, to get your research permission from the Ministry of Higher Education. You were asked to, like, you know, uh, list everybody you want to talk to, um, an interview, and sort of like, you know, a lot of people didn't feel comfortable, like, you know, listing who they're going to interview because, you know, so you kind of there was a lot of, um, but but what struck me is at the time you could read, uh, you know, American newspaper stories or even academic work. It talked about Tunisia as a very open country, as one of the you know Western-oriented, uh, you know, open women have more rights. Um, so one of the the other themes of that you know project was looking at how Tunisia produced this external image of openness, but at the same time within that was to serve tourism. But then within the tourism sector, you could see the the the, the strong sort of um, you know authority of a centralized state. That was that was uh, trying to you know manage and control the economy and the economic resources, um, as well as to manage the, the, the flows of people and how space gets used. So I kind of the other theme of that was looking at authoritarianism and tourism. How often you need to project this open image to, to attract tourists, but at the same time that sector can be used as a as a means to to expand centralized control or even the way. Um, firms might get support from the government or through the EU, but it would be through a mechanism that the, that the state would use uh, uh, to gain influence and control over uh, um, uh, over the private sector. So this is something that, that others, Eva Bellin and others, have looked at, of how the, the state can use a kind of uh, opening, economic opening, as a means to um, maintain state control, to build crony capitalist and, and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And it was also the time where um, the the new the prequels, the Star Wars prequels, were being filmed, and so I got interested in this history of film and tourism, but also um, how how marketing was used. Um, the you know film production was used as a marketing tool. So sure, all this, yeah. you know, uh, yeah, and the project had many different elements to it, and part of my my my, my struggle was to sort of bring it together into. Um, a coherent set of stories. Of course, it's it sounds so very rich and so in in so many different directions, disciplines, types of questions, and it, yeah, it's such a fascinating area of, of study. Uh, well, how has it evolved? Do you think the the study of, of tourism and, and tourism across the region broadly? I mean, 
you you go to somewhere like Jordan where where Petra is is so very central to everything that that the Jordanian state is trying to do in terms of tourism and and economic engagement and obviously tourism across the the Gulf is is central to to their um, their development plans and and raising external capital. How do you think things have evolved? Yeah, well, Jordan was the other major case I, I did field work on, and then you know Dubai and the Gulf is something I developed for going to the book when I, I published the book. Yeah. Um, the, the thing about Jordan is the, the story by the late nineteen nineties. This idea of of uh, you know uh, regional tourism and, um, uh, in the peace process and tourism had pretty much collapsed. So I looked at that story of how the original idea was tourism could be this vehicle to gain uh, economic dividends from peace as a way to the Jordanian government to sell you know peace treaty with Israel, the 1994 peace treaty. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I look at how that begins to fall apart. The experience of Israelis visiting, was disappointing because it, you know, many would just come for short visits, um, and then there was the rise of anti-normalization yeah. um, movement in Jordan. So that that you know, so that so I tell the story of anti-normalization through the lens of tourism, and then how Jordan, you know, uh, was different than the kind of centralized model of Tunisia, where in Jordan different regions and different uh, bits of land. Um, were were controlled and owned by different communities. Some of it goes back to the history of how the mandate was built, and how different communities were were bought were brought into you know um, the Hashemite sort of uh, uh, kingdom uh, support for the kingdom by giving them control over land in local areas. So a lot of the the, the areas where tourism was being developed was actually controlled by by, by local communities, and so that really fragmented. The state couldn't go in and master plan um, these areas. So I look at Petra and the area around Wadi Musa and how you had a kind of, um, with a tourism explosion, a lot of rent-seeking. Um, so I was kind of looking at those politics between like the central state authority or, or different planning uh, authorities that were also fragmented. The Dead Sea had its own uh, you know, uh, um, planning authority. Uh, around you know in the south and Aqaba and other places, mm-hmm. so I was kind of looking at how did how did Jordan respond, and one of the interesting things is how you had new types of tourism evolving, um, like ecotourism, which was one of the most interesting things to see how the Royal Society for the Conservation of Nature and environmentalists in Jordan and graduates, biology graduates from the University of Jordan, kind of worked to cultivate. You know, uh, new kinds of forms of tourism, and some of them were were based on uh, ensuring biodiversity in certain areas. It was part of this new UN mandate, and there was UN, you know, uh, funding, um, uh, um, IMF and others, you know, funding for the World Bank funding for new projects. So it was kind of interesting to see how Jordan, that had historically been seen as a kind of just you know, you know, ancient Roman ruins and Petra and the desert and Bedouins as its tourism model sought to promote new types of tourism sectors to create a, a different kind of image for Jordan. So that has been interesting to see that really develop and expand in the success of ecotourism as a model. I mean, it has its limitations, but it was interesting to see a lot of creativity into creating new types of, uh, let's say, experiences in Jordan yeah. um, that, that, that embrace the diversity of the landscape. So sure. that's, that's something that's been interesting to see, but also... The challenge of the market has been, you know, 
if it's not this crisis, it's the next crisis. And I think most recently, you know, Jordan's really struggled with trying to cultivate, you know, tourism as an economic sector with a lot of the, the downsides, the volatility, um, the, the challenge of trying to, you know, create as a sector that's, that's sustainable and, and promotes, um, you know, broader welfare. That's still a challenge of tourism. I mean, the economics of tourism can benefit certain segments, um, but to, 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 to have lasting, you know, equitable, you know, uh, economic development, it's not, you know, it's, it's not the greatest um, a vehicle. So that's always a kind of challenge. So I think Jordan has still been working on this kind of tourism, but what, not thinking about regional tourism as much as like, what is Jordan as a product? And mm-hmm. I think they've really innovated and gotten better at that. Um, but the last case was Dubai. And I, you know, published the book in 2008, just at the point where there was the beginning of the economic crisis. Um, and, um, but I think in, in many ways, the story of the, the shifting economic center of, you know, the regional, I mean, the Middle East, North Africa, Arab world, um, you know, moving to the Gulf was really kind of part of that story. And, and tourism is part of it, but also aviation was was also a big part of it. So that was the other story that I do think, even though there was the economic crisis, you still see the, the, the flows of capital, you see the geopolitical influence of the Gulf, and you could trace that. You know, often you see the tourism flows beginning, and then you begin to, you know, that that kind of maps. Um, uh, it maps shifts in economic power, the the, the shifting uh, Gulf tourists, but also the idea of creating uh, Dubai and some of these other Gulf states as 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 tourist hubs, as shopping hubs. I think that's been a major kind of, you know, um, feature of the reshaping of the, the regional political economy seeing the Gulfs as these new centers, the their the sources of capital. They're also sources of models. I mean, you know, people have written about, like, parts of Cairo begin to look like the Gulf. Yeah. You know, some of that's because that's where the capital's coming from. Some of that's because that's what the, the upper class kind of leisure experience, the kind of villas you have, the kind of shopping malls, were kind of uh, based on a template from the Gulf for people who worked in the Gulf and then came back with their capital. Um, so I think you've really seen that kind of influence, and that's beyond tourism. But I think tourism is a way I I use as a lens to to look at shopping malls, to look sure. at leisure development, uh, hotel construction, things like that. It's a fascinating way into all these these really important questions that that range from the I guess the the spectacular to to the mundane to the everyday life, but tourism allows you to to crack open the interactions of all these different things, um, politically, economically, culturally, socially, uh, in terms of a whole host of different things. But uh, Willie, we've we've taken up a huge amount of your time already. But if I if I may, I'd just like to ask one final question, and that's just if you could tell us a little bit about your. Uh, your the work that you're doing with with colleagues about uh, critical security studies in the Arab world. If you could just tell uh, people who aren't familiar with what it is that you're trying to do a little bit about the project, please, because I think it's fascinating and really important. Yeah, I, I mean, so this project, the actual uh, the the project of critical security studies in the Arab world, is a project that was. You know, initiated and funded by the Arab Council for the Social Sciences that Setan Shami has been the director of for, for several years. Um, this particular project was 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 um, initiated by Omar Dahi 
from Hampshire College and Samar Boot, who's now at um, Villanova. Um, and um, they, they brought together and part of the mission of the Arab Council on Social Sciences to promote the social sciences in the Arab world. And, and, and the director, uh, Dr. Shami, kind of felt that there, there wasn't, they needed to do a project that was more about international relations, security, some of the topics that Arab scholars in the region weren't really trained in, you know, often stayed away from. They were, you know, these were topics that the military did or they were security. So, so she wanted to say, like, how can we cultivate an understanding and approach to these kind of topics in the Arab world with all the limitations on academic freedom and so forth? So I think part of this project was to, to create a vehicle and outlet to, to offer training, to offer new outlets, to offer mentorship for scholars in the Arab world to work on, on issues of security, but also from, um, from different points of view with different theoretical tools. So people working on issues of borders or things like that, or even just um, public safety issues and how they became securitized um, would be ways. So it was... It was you know that was kind of the, the idea of that project, and and what uh, uh, um, uh, Omar and Samer did, among other things, is help launch a summer school that did uh, um, training. So there was like for for PhD students from the Arab world, they would come for a week and uh, do a series of, of seminars and, um, uh, and and training about you know uh, how to publish an article, how to you know. Uh, um, uh, conceive of a thesis project. Different scholars were at different levels. So that, that I mean, the, the ACSS is a really important, I think, institution, um, uh, fulfilling a role that many universities, you know, in the Arab world have not really done, invested resources in. Um, but I got involved in the project in part because I was already doing something very kind of similar uh, at AUB within the international relations uh, you know, subfield with my colleagues, uh, Prem Akhtasi and Korli Hindawi, um, were thinking about, well, what is international relations, uh, what should it look like um, being based in, in Beirut, in the Arab world, teaching students who are, are mostly from the Arab world. Um, so that was something that uh, my dean, Patrick McGreevy, was very supportive of at the time. You know, we, we should not just be teaching what they teach in North America, but we should be thinking about what, what should we be teaching here? Yeah. So that was also part of the ACSS project, was to think about that. What would be the kind of approach, and um, and that's evolved over time. And I think um, at AUB, they uh, Kareem Mekdesi created a, a, a master's program in international affairs and public policy. And so part of what that training should be was 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 part of this kind of question. What should be ways of thinking about international relations, security questions that are from the point of kind of not just the point of view of the Arab world, but from the experience. So it wasn't like a certain uh, um, political perspective. It was kind of about the experience, and a lot of that experience was 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 shaped by a context of constant insecurity, you know, uh, uh, which is a different approach yeah. than you know much of North American security studies uh, and even European security studies doesn't doesn't you know. It thinks about how to order the region, the region as a source of insecurity, while, you know, in Beirut and other places, you're thinking the source of insecurity is often intervention by external powers, you know, uh, weapon sales uh, um, uh, uh, that, are, uh, that are militarizing, you know, politics in the region, things like that. Sure. That's really, really important stuff. And 
having spoken to to some folks involved peripherally in the project, it's it's so very interesting and so very important intellectually, particularly now with the sort of the global um, the global movement to decolonize uh, various different curricula. I think it's it's incredibly commendable what you've done there. So so thank you for for that. But well, we've we've taken up a huge amount of your time. It's been absolutely fascinating, though. I've thoroughly enjoyed speaking with you. So so thank you so much for giving us your time this afternoon. Oh, thanks a lot. It was great to go over these uh, these topics and I haven't thought so much about for for several years. So I appreciate <laughs> the opportunity. No, it's a it's a pleasure. So thank you so much, Walid. Thank you as always for listening. Until next time.